The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address. And coming to you from the beautiful cloud-covered studios of WWDB AM860 here in Philadelphia and streaming live on WWDB AM.com. You can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at Gmail or on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And a reminder that these shows are archived on my website, JewishSacredAging.com. We will be right back with our first segment guest, writer, teacher, columnist, raconteur, Andy Hockman, right after this message from our good friends down the road at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit kendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Welcome back now to our first segment, and we are very pleased to welcome in studio um, Andy Hockman, a writer, teacher, columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer who writes a uh, regular column called Parent Trip, if I'm not mistaken. Andy, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So lots to talk about, um, sort of like a Renaissance woman uh, doing many things. But let me let me ask you, first of all, uh, you pursue one of the great um, lonely vocations, the writer. What, what, what drew you to be a writer? I... Um I was surrounded by writing. Um, my parents, uh, both are writers. My father, uh, who died in 2015, was a longtime sports columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News. He started there in 1959, and he was uh, he was still writing up until the time he died. The great Stan Hockman. Stan Hockman, yes. One of the great, one of the great greatest sports writers. Writers. I ever encountered. Yes, and one of the greatest fathers as well. That's even more important. Yes. And uh, my mother, uh, who is still living in the the house my parents bought in 1965, um, is also a writer. She's uh, primarily a medical and science journalist Mm. um, who's written a lot about mental health. And she also works in uh, adoption and uh, foster care. She works at the National Adoption Agency. So I was surrounded by writing. Um, you know, it, it is literally true that I would go to sleep lullabied by the sound of my mother typing on her manual typewriter. And uh, that became so soothing for me that if she stopped to take a break, um, I couldn't fall asleep, that I would sometimes ask her to keep typing. That's a great um, image. So though. I, could, so I image. could listen to it and be uh, be lulled to sleep by those, uh, I think it was a facet typewriter. I can picture it now. Um, so I was, I was surrounded by writing and, uh, you know, grew up with the idea that, uh, you know, that that was uh, a viable and, uh, you know, and, and worthy and important thing to do. 
and you and you teach this too, right? You were talking before the show in schools and seminars, you go on the road, right? Correct? I do. I uh I teach in uh in a number of different venues. I've been a a teaching artist in uh in Oregon when I used to live there and for the last oh almost 20 years or so in New Jersey. So what that means is that I will visit uh, schools, uh, mostly public schools, although sometimes private or parochial schools uh, in various parts of New Jersey, and work with kids from first grade up through high school. Uh, it might be for four days. It might be every Tuesday for six weeks, uh, working with them to find their voices as poets and, and writers. In the age of the digital age, mm-hmm. okay, which evidently, rumor has it we're living in. I, I think we are. I've heard that. <laughs> and um, if I, if I forget, my 15 year old daughter reminds me of that. Yeah, frequently. they're very good at that. Um, when you go into schools and mm-hmm. and work with are you are with high school kids, middle school sure. kids, or all uh, of the all above, ages. all mm-hmm. of the above, what? How do they react to to being given permission to think and then write down their thoughts on mm-hmm. paper or on the computer? Mm-hmm. But really, to because it's just different now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is different. Um, I think mostly they're they're hungry for it. Really? Yeah, and I think. Um, I think maybe mm, partly because they crave that power of, um, you know, face-to-face, in-person encounters with their own words and other people's words. It's different than reading something online that's disembodied. You don't see the person who wrote it. You don't, um, you don't look at their facial expression or experience the inflection or tone in their voices. But I also think they're hungry for it because... Um, for all kinds of reasons, including the the push for standardized testing, there's less and less room in schools for the exercise of imagination and creativity and um, uh, less rule-bound ways of thinking. And so I find that when I go into schools, both the teachers and the kids um, are are pretty hungry and uh, and eager for the kind of work that we do together. You said something that I, I, I want to pursue, mm-hmm. um, that writing is, in essence, empowering of the self. Mm-hmm. Could, what, unpack that for me because it's sure, a great concept. Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things that I try to get across when I'm working with writers, whether they're seven years old or 70 years old, is that uh, – that their lives matter. And depending on who I'm working with, um, some people have never been told that. Um, Some people have been told the opposite, that their lives don't matter, that no one cares about what happens to them. And so I'm thinking especially of some kids I've worked with at a a charter school in Newark, a school called Brick Avon, where I've gone back a few years in a row. And uh, a lot of the kids there have grown up in, uh, in pretty poor families um in uh, pretty rough neighborhoods and uh, are carrying stories around with them, stories inside them of things they've experienced, of the sounds of their neighborhoods, what their lives have been like. And um, for some of them, no one has ever told them that those stories are valuable, that they might make a difference to someone else, that they might make a difference to these kids themselves mm-hmm. if they wrote them down. And I can think of so many 
experiences there where a child has written something maybe for the first time. Uh, I remember a boy who wrote about uh, his cousin's death. His cousin was uh, killed by street violence. And that was a story he'd never given voice to before. And sometimes there's there's a reluctance at first to write about it, especially, you know, I'm a stranger. I pop into their neighborhood. I don't I don't know them. Uh, I'm going to be there for just four days. And so, you know, the beginning of my work is about building trust and uh, and letting them know that whatever they write is welcome and uh, that I'm not going to be shocked and I'm not going to judge them and I'm not going to punish them. Um, and then I bring all kinds of examples of work from writers across the spectrum, living writers, dead writers, um, writers who um, who have been brave enough to write about the the painful things they've experienced and who I hope and have give permission uh, to kids to do the same thing, to write about their lives. Your favorite writer right now. Oh, <laughs> You knew this was coming. You know, people, people ask, So, and this, I think this happens to all kinds of people, right? Someone asks and then your brain is like immediately scrubbed clean. So, um, uh, you know, the, I, I can't even say just one. They're writers. Um, okay, let me rephrase that. Okay. Okay. Favorites, plural. Uh, uh, you have, uh, you're on that desert island and you have, you can choose a, a one book. Okay. Uh, I would probably bring uh, today, this would be my answer tomorrow, ask me again, I'll tell you something different. Today I would bring uh, Angels in America by Tony Kushner, oh, okay. um, the, the script of that. I've been thinking, particularly in the days since uh, November 8th, I've been thinking about that play and about his work a lot. So speaking of that and, and Angels in America, let's let's segue in, if we can, to your – you write for the Inquirer. I do. I've the been freelancing trip. for them for a long time. And then for uh, – starting in September 2014, I began writing a weekly feature called The Parent Trip that uh, usually appears on Wednesdays. This week will be a little different. It will appear on Thursday uh, because Wednesday's section will be full of Food. reviews reviews Food. of brand new movies. No, movies. Really? Yes, all the Thanksgiving movies that are coming out. So those will occupy the Wednesday section. It's a new Star Wars movie coming out. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yes, the column is called The Parent Trip, and uh, each week it's, uh, it's a profile of approximately a 1,000 words of an individual or a couple, and uh, it chronicles how they became parents, what their journey was like. So you're, you're, you've chronicled this, and now you're, you, you, you're um, let's just say, an expert. It's true. <laughs> on the changing nature of the American family. Mm-hmm. And our focus here on Boomer Generation Radio is really obviously to talk about, you know, the impact of longevity on baby boomers. And one of the things that rarely gets talked about because mm-hmm. uh, is the changing nature of the families that we deal with as parents and now also grandparents. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about your observation about how so much of the family, American family, there is no such thing as a normative family, is there? No, there isn't. And honestly, I'm not sure there ever was. Right. Um, you know, people talk about it as if there was some sort of golden period, you know, the uh, leave it to beaver, father knows best era. Only but, on TV. But the, it, really, uh, you know, the televised families may have looked fairly normative at one time, but the folks who were watching, um, probably not. Um, 
you know, there have always been single parent families. There have, uh, you know, there have been uh, same sex parents, whether they were out or visible, um, whether they were permitted to adopt, um, you know, that has certainly changed. But, uh, but there, you know, have always been multi-generational families, um, interracial families, uh, both before and after, uh, that was legal. Um, so I think what we're, you know, what's different now is that so many more forms of family are becoming more visible, um, both, you know, as a result of, um, you know, advances in gay and lesbian civil rights, uh, post Stonewall, uh, now, of course, with marriage equality being the law of the land, um, uh, you know, interracial families, interfaith families. And one of my goals with the parent trip is to, uh, you know, over the long arc, over the period of a year or two, to uh, to really show that full spectrum of families. Um, I want to come back. We're going to take a quick break for okay. uh, a message from Kendall, but then I want to explore because explore this whole dynamic and change of families because it really is impacting. Uh, the more I see, and you know, just the baby boomers because we're just dealing with so many different variables, mm-hmm. um, and where. A lot of boomers are now also becoming full-time caregivers of Absolutely. grandchildren, which is another dynamic that, that's very, very, mm-hmm. very different. We're going to be right back with Andy Hockman, writer, teacher, raconteur, Philadelphia Inquirer, columnist, published author. We have to talk about your books, too, before we leave, right after this message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our first segment <laughs> here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio with Andy Hockman. We're talking about her uh, writing, uh, her teaching, her column, Parent Trip for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And before the break, we were just just starting to get into this little conversation I wanted to push you on about the changing nature of the family. Um, what is – you've been chronicling this. What's the, what's the biggest change you've seen in your writing uh, in the the American family right now, what's what's the, in the biggest mm-hmm. shift? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, again, I'm not sure I can say that there's just one. I think the um, I think the increased visibility of uh, same sex mm-hmm. families um, has been a big change. I mean, I, I've I haven't kept count, but uh, you know, over the slightly more than two years that I've been writing this column, so that's uh, well over a hundred families. Um, you know, I've interviewed a number of same-sex, both lesbian and gay couples, um, who have built their families in all kinds of different ways, whether through surrogacy, through adoption, through fostering that led to adoption, through um, using donor insemination. Um, you know, every every kind of family building that you can imagine. Um, and I think part of what's so striking about those families is that um, that it's not so striking 
anymore. Um, you know, they live all over. They're not just in, uh, you know, the neighborhood or places where, or West Mount Airy, places where you might expect there to be, um, you know, broader acceptance and embrace of same-sex parenting. But, uh, you know, I talked to a lesbian couple recently who are in Haddonfield and were pleasantly surprised to discover when they moved there that there were five other same-sex couples on their block. Oh, and, uh, you know, that their, their children would certainly not be the only ones in their schools, in their public schools, with two moms or two dads. Um, so I think that's been a big change. I think um, people having children later, um, you know, many of the couples, I, I, I've interviewed couples all across the age span, um, including recently a, a 17 and 18 year old who really? uh, had a baby and uh, decided, to, well, first to carry the pregnancy to term and second to raise the child themselves um, with the help of the of the young woman's mother. Um, they live with they live with her mother and her siblings, um, but many of the many people I've interviewed are having their first babies or adopting for the first time uh, in their 30s, mid 30s, late 30s, even early 40s. Um, I had the pleasure recently of interviewing uh, someone I went to high school with, uh, who he and his wife. Uh, his partner, actually, uh, he and his partner just had their first baby, and uh, he's 54 and she's 39. So, uh, you know, someone in his early 50s uh, starting from scratch with uh, baby number one. In your research, have you found a retreat from marriage? People just content to raise a child or without benefit of marriage, or, or is, the, is the American mm-hmm. dream of getting married still the predominant one? You know, I, I have found uh, more couples uh, who I've interviewed, more than I might have thought, um, who uh, either for ideological reasons have opted not to get married or more for practical reasons uh, preferred to save their money uh, mm. either to raise a child uh, or to travel or to do something else, to buy a house. Um, so, y- yes, that, that actually has been one of my surprises in writing the column, the, the number of uh, – of people who um, are either postponing marriage or, uh, you know, several couples who said, yeah, we're doing it out of order. You know, we had the kid first and maybe we'll get married sometime down the line or maybe we won't. And, uh, you know, I think that's also increasingly acceptable. In your, in your, just, this just sort of popped into my, do you, you have a, a perspective of family changes do you find more of this, ex, quote, acceptance, unquote, um, in what I guess the literature still calls non-traditional families, again, whatever that means, more um, on the coasts rather than in middle America? Is there, is, are there differences geographically still in this country about the acceptance of uh, non-traditional families? Mm-hmm. Again, to use a phrase that, mm-hmm. I, that keeps getting mm-hmm. used. You know, I, I think there certainly are. Um, you know, my personal experience, I've, I've lived only on the coasts. Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia and went to school in Connecticut, lived in Washington, D.C., and then moved to Portland, Oregon. Uh, yes, so, very so, skewed. Uh, you <laughs> no, know, both, no, all uh, both, of those places. Both fairly, fairly blue corridors, yeah, uh, in yeah, the, in yeah, the red, right. in the red blue, uh, dichotomy. Um, so, certainly, I think there is, uh, you know, to some extent still an, 
um, you know, a bit of an urban-rural divide yeah. um, about that, uh, you know, big city, small town. At the same time, uh, you know, Iowa was one of the first states to um, to pass marriage equality before it became the national law of the land, and I think that may have been a surprise to some people. It's a little bit of a surprise to me. And I read recently about a, a Baptist church, I think it may have been in Iowa, where a, uh, a same-sex couple, a male couple who'd been longtime members of the church, uh, asked their pastor if they could be married in the church, and his first uh, reaction was a little bit of hesitation. He wasn't sure the church community was quite ready for it. He asked the men if they would be willing to wait a year, and they said yes, and at the end of a year, they tapped on his door again and said, Pastor, it's been a year, it's time, can we do this? And he decided at that point the church was ready, and they had a marriage ceremony in the church. Um, so, you know, this is a Baptist church in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, th- I, think the most, I think the most powerful persuasion um, when people are frightened of difference is a personal relationship. And so when your niece comes out or your colleague or your best friend from elementary school or your next-door neighbor or you see the other, you know, that someone in your child's kindergarten class has two moms, um, those are persuasive experiences, and you don't have to live in a city to have those experiences. And how concerned are you with the the coming four years? As a writer, as somebody who studies this, I mean, and, and you, you have a unique perspective. You've mm-hmm. sat with the people and you've mm-hmm. talked to them. They, you've become part of their, their lives mm-hmm. and published it. So obviously they've given you permission to, to publish their, their life stories. Mm-hmm. So as the journalist and the observer, mm-hmm. uh, do you think that this openness to family diversity will, is going to be under attack? I'm fearful of that. Really? Um, I'm fearful uh, not only of that particular uh, form of diversity being under attack, but of all the kinds of diversity that were so um, vehemently under attack during the campaign and uh, and continue to be in uh, in the days since the election. So, yes, I uh, I think over the past. Two weeks since November 8th, I have cycled through periods I can only describe as abject terror, uh, alternating with um, being somewhat consoled by going back to the words of prophetic and revolutionary writers who I admire, Grace Paley and Tony Kushner and Naomi Shihab Nye, and uh, really holding on very tightly to the words of people who have uh, have struggled, who've been part of uh, all the civil rights movements that have brought us to where we are today. Um, so I have, uh, I'm I'm trying to hold on to uh, uh, what uh, the philosopher uh, uh, Jonathan Lear describes as radical hope. Uh, trying to hold on to that. It's not been easy in the past two weeks, but, Good phrase. Good um, phrase. but I, uh, I also feel like it's, it's a necessity, uh, both to, not only to personally get through my days, but it's, it's a necessity in, in, uh, reminding me to continue reaching out, to continue marching, to continue, uh, resisting and, uh, working toward creating the kind of world I want to live in and that I want my, children's children's children to live in 
before we start running out of time for this segment, mm-hmm. I, I, I do want to just want to jump in also one thing in, in your research with families. Have you noticed because uh, as I travel and, and, and do the work that I'm doing in, in Jewish sacred aging, um, an increased number of boomers who are grandparents mm-hmm. also intimately involved now uh, as caregivers uh, or also sometimes even raising grandchildren mm-hmm. as the dynamics of families change. Have you have you seen that? Have you chronicled that? I have. Um, so both through a couple of parent trip columns that uh, that profiled families uh, who have uh, intentionally created multi-generational living situation. So um, Mount Airy is particularly suited to that because there are all these gigantic, rambling seven-bedroom houses, and um, very few people are having six or seven children anymore. Um, but those houses lend themselves really well to having uh, you know, a mother-in-law apartment. Um, so I actually know quite a few people, even in my uh, in my personal circle, mm-hmm. who've opted to live that way, um, you know, a, a grandmother or grandparents in one wing of the house or one side of the duplex and, uh, you know, parents raising kids. Uh, so three generations and the people I know who've opted to do that uh, are doing it, uh, you know, partly to have both live in childcare and live in elder care uh, and because they really want to foster and build those connections among generations in their families. Um, yeah, I have a little, the last time I interviewed a family like that, I, I came away with a little, um, yeah, kind of wistful and, uh, you know, wishful uh, response to it, thinking, you know, I even started looking for, uh, as I Walked around the neighborhood. Huh? Is there a is there a house that would lend itself to to us doing that? Um, yeah, I find that idea very very appealing. Uh, just in a couple of minutes left in this segment, uh, you've you've written a couple of books. I have. And so, talk to me real fast um, about those books and how one can get them. Sure. Uh, I have two books. The first is called Everyday Acts and Small Subversions: Women Reinventing Family, Community, and Home. A title that does not fit neatly on a bumper sticker, but uh, it's a book of uh, personal essays, interlaced personal essays and interviews with women from all over the country about uh, the changing uh, picture of family and how they're creating it. My second book is Anatomies, a Novella and Stories, published by Picador USA, now a division of St. Martin's, and that is, as the title explains, uh, a collection of short fiction and one longer piece of fiction, a novella-length piece. And your website, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, somebody wants to invite you to speak, uh, you know, touch base with you, et cetera, et cetera, how do they do that? Sure. I'm easy to find online at www.andyhockman.com. And I should spell my name. It yeah, has yeah. an unusual spelling, uh, thanks to my parents' imagination. It's A-N-N-D-E-E dot Hockman, H-O-C-H-M-A-N, so andyhockman.com. So, Andy Hockman, writer, uh, poet, because we also didn't, you know, well, you, you also teach poetry and uh, creative writing, um, columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, the, the column Parent Trip, and you can read it not only in the print edition, but it's on, on the... Online um, at philly.com. philly.com. Mm-hmm. Each Wednesday, with the exception of this week, it'll be pu- published on Thursday. In the 30 seconds left, based upon your experience and knowledge... Best piece of advice to give families? <laughs> the um, 
best piece of advice to give families? Uh, that whatever shape your family is, I think the the most important element uh, of a family is uh, a generous capacity for uh, love and respect and um, uh, sort of creating a, a foundation where every member of that family knows how valuable he or she is and uh, then can take that uh, that knowledge and that um, that belief out into the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Andy Hockman. You can, again, read her in the weekly uh, parent trip column in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Get a hold of her books at andyhockman.com, A-N-N-D-E-E, Hockman, H-O-C-H-M-A-N.com. Andy, thank you very much for being a guest here on Boomer Generation Radio. Have a good holiday. Continued success. Keep writing well, and thank you for your time and and your knowledge here this morning. Thank, Thank you very you much. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to talk with you. We'll be back with our second guest, Pat Tadell from the Gunderson Health uh, Group in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Right after this, uh, we're going to float back in time a little Johnny Mathis this morning. Uh, get you in the mood. When sunny gets blue, her get gray and cloudy then the rain begins to fall pitter patter pitter patter love is gone so what can matter no sweet love a man comes to call when sunny gets blue she breathes a sigh Sadness like the wind that stirs the trees, wind that sets the leaves to swaying like some violins are playing weird and haunting melodies. People used to love to hear her laugh. See her smile That's how she got her name Since that sad affair She's lost her smile Changed her style Somehow she's not the same But memories will fade And pretty dreams will rise up where her other dreams fell through. Hurry, new love, hurry here to kiss away each lonely tear and hold her new when sunny gets blue. Hurry, new love, hurry here to kiss away each lonely tear.
And welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you from WWDB here in Greater Philadelphia, AM 860. We're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And again, you can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com. Like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And these shows are archived as podcasts on my website, www.jewishsacredaging.com. And we welcome through the magic of electronics, I hope, uh, Pat Tadell from La Crosse, Wisconsin, from Gunderson Health. Pat, are you there? I am. Hi. How are you? Great, thank you. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate the time with you. How 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 is it snowing there? Um, they're promising or threatening snow later today. Right now, it's just a little bitterly cold out there. But thanks for asking. Well, do us a favor here in in the Delaware Valley. Keep it keep it there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do. I'll try. <laughs> Please do, because it's it's it's. I'm not a big fan of winter or snow, but what can I tell you? Listen, welcome, welcome, welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. Um, talk to me about what Gunderson Health is, because it's a fairly pioneering enterprise and very, very creative. Yes, thank you. To some extent it is, because it is a a, a system that is uh, innovative and created the development of the principles of advanced care planning began in La Crosse, Wisconsin, in a county where four of the city's major health care providers, which was the Gunderson Clinic, at that time the Lutheran Healthcare System, Franciscan Health System, and Skemp Clinic, agreed to collaboratively create a new approach to advanced care planning. So all these different competitors came together with the larger community and created a program that we now call Respecting Choices. And these, this was started between 1991 and 93, and two decades later, population studies have demonstrated that a high prevalence of documented care plans, uh, 96% of advanced care planning documents are found in the county's decedents. Those that have died have it available in their medical records at 98%, and that treatment preferences are consistent with the treatment that is provided in over 99%. So that's pretty astounding when you look at the fact that across the country it's at about 25%. So what what made Gunderson decide to focus on advanced care? Was there some well, critical moment there? There was a critical moment. Thanks for asking. And, and it really started with a story. And the story isn't really a very good fairy tale, nor is it an entertaining action thriller. But it's pretty simple. Having lived with an advanced illness for several years, somebody you love is very seriously ill now. There's options for treatment, but there's uncertainty about the ending of those treatments. Looking at that, when this critical moment happened, Dr. Bud Hamas was involved with a patient just like that, and none of the possible outcomes were attractive for this particular individual. Serious risks and burdens from attempting the treatments were possible, and even with treatment, that loved one's death in the near future was highly probable. What he saw then was the real struggle and wondering what would they want us to do, what would their loved one want us to do in this case. And because this person was so fragile, they weren't actively involved in the decision-making. 
this story really continues to repeat. And at that time, Dr. Bud Hammond said, you know, even though the Patient Self-Determination Act had come into effect, we weren't seeing that people were really expressing what was important to them, what kind of decisions would have to be made in a case like that. And it caused great grief and struggle with families afterwards that wondered if they had done the right thing when that person was no longer able to speak for themselves. They had to make decisions. And so he really met with all these different competing organizations and said, we need to do things differently. And so it really was a grassroots organization of community members that said, we want to do things differently. So, uh, uh, Pat, you mentioned this began in 1991, between 91 and 93. That's really way ahead of the curve on the current drive to discuss and raise awareness about advanced care planning. Um, I, I guess I have to ask you, this is quite a quite a while ago, what was the initial reaction? Was there a lot of, you know, why, why are you doing this? Um, uh, why now? I mean, it, it, the, the, the field is much more fertile to have this conversation now. But in 91, 93, this was, I would imagine, a fairly new idea, wasn't it? It was a very new idea. And in fact, in uh, one, I'll give you one case where uh, Dr. Hammes went into the library in town and said, you know, could you put up this poster talking about advanced care planning and the importance of telling us what your choices are so we know best how to take care of you. And the library said, you know what, we can't um, support one organization over another in town. And it was pointed out that this was everybody in town. It was the ministers, the rabbis, the, the attorneys, the healthcare systems, all of them came together and said, we want to help you, but we can't know how to do that unless you tell us. And then organizations such as the library said, oh, well, it looks like it's everybody coming together and saying this. So, yeah, we'll put it up. So even though it was a new concept, what we have found, even from those early beginnings, is that people want to do this. They just don't know how to access help to do it, meaning to talk about what's important to them, that we all wait for the other person to say, what is important to you or what do you think you want for yourself? And unfortunately, then that conversation doesn't ever occur in so many cases. Right. And in this case, uh, we just started inviting people to have a conversation about what was important to them, not filling out a form, not, oh, if you're going to die, what do you want us to do? But just what's important to you? Who are you? What does living well mean? And how can we help you do that? Okay, so let's fast forward to 2016. Um, mm -hmm. This issue of advanced care planning has become a major topic. Uh, we deal with it all the time at, uh, on, in my work in Jewish Sacred Aging. Um, I was just off the road visiting two cities and two congregations where this was a major topic of conversation and just had a meeting yesterday with some people from the Conversation Project in Boston and um, this is, uh, you know, we're both involved with an organization called CTAC out of Washington, the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care. It's in the news as legislation now, uh, aborning around many, many states. Something's going on, and 
you're at the front lines of this. Is this because baby boomers have now woken up to the reality that they're going to, we're all going to die and we want to control this? Or is there still a lot of denial that this is really going to happen? I think that a few things come into play. Uh, it's a good question, and I think one that we have to ask ourselves as part of the generations that are sandwiched in, those that are looking to their elders who are needing to start to make decisions and have conversations with those baby boomers about what they want for themselves, and as well as baby boomers, knowing that our complex systems for healthcare allow us a lot of choices, but fitting those choices into who we are as a person, and not just who I am physically, but also who I am spiritually and within a culture and personally, is becoming more and more allowed as part of a conversation and imperative to it. The other thing that I think is happening, as you mentioned, CTAC, is that we're seeing more and more that care of those with advanced disease need to be supported by the wider community, the community that they live in, their community of faith, their community uh, where they live, and not just part of a healthcare system that it takes a lot more to take care of people who have advanced illness. And so those of us that are not necessarily fragile or sick are looking to how do we become part of that community, that larger community, and as well, how do we help shape community for our elders and for a time when it is all about me? So I do think that the um, the youngers are are looking forward to what if I don't have the support of the systems and we need to create new systems for helping those with disease, and we can't rely on the healthcare systems to do that. So we're speaking with Pat Tadell from the Gunderson Healthcare System in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And uh, we're going to take a break here and listen to a segment or a spot from our friends at Kendall. And when we come back, Pat, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about have you talk, walk us through what this program that, that Gunderson created. It's, it's really gone national, this idea of respecting choices and why it. But I, I need to ask you a favor before we go to the Kendall spot. Um, I know this is long distance. I don't know whether you're on a cell phone or a landline, but every once in a while we're getting a little breakup so mm. on the air, and this is live. So um, let's – On our break, I'll check. I am on a landline, but thanks for letting me know. Yeah, let me know. So I don't know whether – you, you can sometimes do what I do when a piece of technology doesn't go right. I just smack it. And that usually does nothing, <laughs> but it alleviates my anxiety. So um, um, let's see. We'll keep trying. You're on a landline, right? Yes. All right. So we'll keep trying. Maybe it's because of the impending snow and the and the electronic gods, as usual, are messing us up. But we'll be right back with Pat right after this word from our friends down the street at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit kendalloutreach.org. 
Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. And we're speaking with Pat Tadell from the Gunderson Health Systems in La Crosse, Wisconsin, about a pioneering effort that began began in the 1990s, the early 1990s, is now known as Respecting Choices. What? So, Pat, walk us through what Respecting Choices is. Sure. So we are an internationally recognized evidence-based advanced care planning service. It's a standardized way of looking at advanced care planning not as a one-time event, but looking at things such as advanced directives as a conversation that is facilitated by someone who has received a specialized education in skills to help facilitate a conversation between the person and the person who they choose as their agent so that they can then continue an enduring conversation about what's important to them throughout their life experience or their disease trajectory so that that person, because as we advance through our illness, through our age, we change our minds, our goals and our values shift and change and become much more developed. And so making available an ongoing conversation helps to support the fact that those goals and values will be acknowledged and possibly written down so that the healthcare team can know what it is that the person wants for themselves and how to fit in any medical interventions around what's important to that person. So what we found over the years, though, is just training facilitators with a very standardized way of training wasn't enough, that there had to be an ongoing process that was built into the routine of care of person-centered care within healthcare systems and within the community so that that person has the opportunity to meet with someone and to ongoing change what it is that they want for themselves based upon their goals and values at that time. And so it really transforms care through a document, but beyond that into success for organizations around the country and the world um, and has been integrated into major healthcare organizations such as Kaiser Permanente of Northern California, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and the Wisconsin Medical Society, which is a statewide initiative in order to support person-centered care through the facilitated conversation because it really does take a team mm-hmm. to help keep it ongoing throughout a person's life. So Gunderson will train a facilitator. This facilitator will then sit down with me and my designated healthcare proxy or agent and walk us through the goal, my own goals, objectives of healthcare. Uh, will it, will, will, will that trainer also, will that facilitator also assist us in filling out various forms? And will then that facilitator continue to be in touch with me? Uh, over the course of the, the trajectory, as you call it, in case I change my mind or, or, and, or if medical technology changes while allowing different things to take place. Is that how it works? Yes, but you can tell by even going through that, 
that it needs a system to support it. And so we also consult with healthcare systems and faith communities to help the, have the opportunities available for that person. So it could be that it's not that same facilitator, but another facilitator in another piece of that system that supports the person who can have the ongoing conversation with them. So you can't just say to a person, you should do this over the course of your life whenever you have what we call tipping points uh, when you have made decisions. Say I have a new disease that I hadn't thought of before or say somebody who I had named as my agent is no longer available to me. I need to go back and change it is that you need a system to help support that. And so we do consultant work with those different systems to help create the um, opportunities ongoing for that person. And you say you're now with several organizations around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, how difficult is it to train somebody? Is it a it is a one day training? Is it a six month training? What, walk me through that. Sure. So we do it in a couple of different ways. One is an individual or a few people can come together at one of our national trainings. They go through a four-module online course, which is interactive, that they do on their own from any computer. And then they come to an all-day course, which is eight hours, to uh, really intensively look at the skills that are part of the facilitated interview process and using our interview tools that are evidence-based to create that standardized way of interviewing with a person. So at the end of that eight hours, then, of course, they have a basic understanding of what it is that they'll need to do. And then we encourage them to go and practice what it is that they'll be doing through role plays with others so that by the time they get in front of another person, they feel very comfortable and competent in their skills to have a facilitated conversation. The other way we do it is through those healthcare organizations that sign a contract with us, and we go in and we consult with them for the systems pieces that need to support the conversation. And as well, we do that same training on site. We also do it in faith communities, such as What Matters, mm-hmm. which is a Jewish faith experience in New York City. And so we went on site and trained people that were part of that systems change throughout their synagogues and others within their community. And you've done this with church communities as well? We have. We've done it with church communities around nationally as well as um, somewhat internationally, long-term care, many different organizations. So you use a phrase a lot and, and on, on the literature, evidence-based. So for somebody who may not be familiar with what that term means, what is that? what does that mean, evidence-based? Thank you. The evidence-based means that it continues to go through rigorous testing Some are longitudinal studies to look at the effectiveness of the conversation, the effectiveness of the specific questions that are asked throughout the facilitated conversation, to look at the teaching methodologies that are part of the core elements of teaching the course so that it is standardized and that it meets the kind of rigor that you would, for instance, see people who know about um, doing... um, 
ACLS, which is um, supported through the American Heart Association, for anybody to be able to help out if somebody hits the ground and is looks like they're in distress, to help them with breathing and to bring back um, to some extent to support them until they can get health care support. So that's a standardized approach, and so we look at it the same way. And as well, Respecting Choices is their own living lab and that we're constantly looking at whether we are effectively meeting the goals of the interview process to help a person to express their goals and values and how it fits with possible health care decisions they might need to make for themselves. Yeah, I think this the idea of constantly reevaluating and constantly examining what where one is in life is is extremely important. I mean, I, I'm sure you've you've encountered this as well. Somebody will say, "Well, well, I have an advanced directive, and I filled out the forms, and you know, I did that five or six years ago, but I haven't really looked at it." And the world has changed, and they may themselves have a different definition of what they want and and what they wish for um, as their own dynamics. Uh, as their own dynamics change. If somebody wanted to, you know, as long as we're on the air, contact you, how how does one avail themselves of information in contacting uh, you and uh, the Respecting Choices program? They can reach myself as well as any information they want about Respecting Choices through our website, which is www.respectingchoices.org. And there's a lot of really good information there that goes into more detail about the research and the evidence-based approach that we use. And as well, they can just send us an email at respectingchoices at Gunderson Health. That's G-U-N-D-E-R-S-E-N health.org. And either way, would get them to myself or one of the other faculty. So, Pat, let me, before we start running out of time for this segment, uh, you're dealing with something that's very, very powerful, grassroots, very, very, very personal, as you know. One of the issues that keeps coming up in my travels uh, came up again the last two weekends uh, on the road um, is this whole idea of the economics of aging. Given the realities of the boomers aging, given the realities of potential changes in huge aspects of the healthcare system with the new administration – how do how do we begin to make sense of the costs um, of 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 getting sick and even dying, which continue to explode? Really, don't they? How do we begin to deal with this as a society? Uh, one of the ways that we have seen it, it's been incidental because advanced care planning through respecting choices is not about cost cutting, but we have seen that. Uh, there is cost cutting because if people really explore what it is they want for themselves, many times it isn't having increased cost with the high potential for burden to them. And burden is really individualized for what's important to that person. But the burden of those high cost interventions may not meet the goals that that person has for themselves. So, for instance, if my goal is that I want to die quietly at home, surrounded my, by my family, with everything possible being done for comfort, but not to be hooked up to machines, the cost of that could be dramatically different than if I'm in an ICU with all kinds of interventions that will not have for me the goal that I want, because either way, I'm dying, but I'm not with my family and I'm not in the place that I consider sacred to me, which is my own home. 
And so we have found incidentally that um, we increase the number of support um, needs for a person through hospice, palliative care, and decrease the median length of admission or hospital-based care. It decreases because people don't want necessarily to have all that if the high cost of burden to them physically or part of who they are as a person is high and the return on that is low, but they only can know that if they're engaged in the conversation. Right. We and, call that shared decision-making, right? So for some, it might mean that. So I don't mean to say that for some that high cost isn't important, but we only know that if we engage a person in the conversation of what do they hope for this, what do they want from this, and where do they expect this to take them. It's not only the financial cost, but as as you know, or I assume, and many of my colleagues do, there's a spiritual and emotional cost in, that that has to be factored into this as well. And does this and this goes to the sense of one's own definition of dignity, doesn't it? It really does, and it also demands of all of us a different way of caring. Because if a person says, to use that same example, I want to be at home with my family around me, we have to figure out how to have that community support a person to be home, Mm -hmm. whether it be through healthcare services. And that's something to go back to what you had said earlier about CTAC, is that's something that CTAC is looking at, that a person does not stand alone, but they have a huge community of their, uh, their faith, their health care, their, um, the people that live by them, the people that surround them, their own family, the family they've created for themselves that has to be part of this. And we have to figure out how to do that because the ability to do it in different ways is not necessarily there. So we have to figure out how to engage that community and places like What Matters and other faith communities that are embracing this work are seeing more and more that by calling out to the communities that people live in, the community is there and ready. They just want to know how to do it. Well, that's so it's a great way to – it's a great – given the fact that we're just about to go to Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and em- emphasis on family and community, it's a great, great message to end today's show on and – Pat Padel from Gunderson Health and Respecting Choices, thank you very, 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 very much for joining us here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Keep up the great work, and thank you, Pat, for joining us. And to all of you, have a great holiday, everybody, and we'll see you next week on Boomer Generation Radio. Take care. Have a great week. Stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, Pat.